0: Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our host, Steve Butler. On today's program, our series entitled, The Second Coming versus the Rapture, as he opens God's Word to study the difference between the Rapture and the Second Coming. It's time to explore Bible prophecy. Hello and welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy. It's good to have you with us as we continue in our series on the difference between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ to the earth with the church. And we're in point number five, and we are in the book of John, which is the fourth of the four gospels. So I I hope that you have your Bible with you and that you can find the book of John. It's uh, the beginning of the New Testament, the fourth book in. Matthew, Mark, Luke and, Luke, and John, and right towards the end of that um, great book by the Apostle John, we want to find chapter 20 and pick up where we left off in our last program where we were talking about the apostles being in, the, um, in a room locked, uh, cowering, if you will, afraid, because their leader, their Messiah, their Messiah, they believed him to be the Messiah, and they were one of the very few that did. Uh, just a precious handful. Several hundred um, saw him when he came to the, uh, uh, came back to the earth in his glorified body. We realized that there were thousands, but they, they had already scattered out across uh, the world by that time. and Jesus, of course, was focusing his ministry. Uh, primarily in Jerusalem after he was glorified. So we, uh, we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 5 through 8 that uh, up to 500 people at one time believers saw him uh, in his glorified body at that point before he was taken back to heaven uh, waiting to come back and rapture his church and then return to the earth and um, glorify and bless Israel as was promised in the Old Testament. So we want to um, be in our, in our Bibles in John chapter 20, but I also want to point out to you, particularly if this is your first time uh, visiting with us here at Exploring Bible Prophecy, or perhaps just um, been with us for a few programs, that you can go to the radio station here uh, at WHCB and go to their website, whcbradio.org and go to Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you'll find a handout for this um, current series that we're in, uh, exploring the difference between the rapture and the second coming. And when you um, get that handout, you'll see that there are a lot of scriptures, and I always try to bring as many pertinent scriptures into a subject as we can, because first and foremost, we want the Bible to tell us what the truth is. We don't want man to tell us necessarily what it is. We want the Holy Spirit through the scripture to show us first and foremost, but also as we look at a variety of scriptures, it helps us to know what's in the Bible. Where is uh, Ezekiel? I mean, is Ezekiel even a book in the Bible? Of course it is. So of course, uh, with Bible prophecy, we spend a lot of time in Ezekiel. We spend a lot of time in books of the Bible that a lot of people don't even know are there because they don't. Care to take the time to even open their Bibles. So, we want to not only read the Bible, but we want to learn how to study the Bible and to explore the Bible because that's where we find the many, many, many rich truths of God's Word that bless us, that give us everything we need for life and godliness. And that when we learn how to study the Bible, we don't have to spend the time that perhaps you have been searching for truth about God, about Jesus, about the rapture, the second coming, in other men's books, when you can go to God's book, the most important, the most, well, I shouldn't say truthful, it's total truth, isn't it, that we want to spend our time there. So that's uh, that's what we're doing. So this handout that you can get at whcbradio.org, Uh, We'll uh, go a long way to help you follow along with us because we're in point number five in this program, and we've been here for a while because point five is so rich, uh, and the um, subject there is Jesus appears to church-age believers only in the rapture. So this is on the left-hand side under the rapture column, and we've been spending uh, a number of programs, as it turns out, uh, talking about the background of what it means for believers only to see Jesus once he's in his glorified body because um, everybody saw him because he came the, f- the first, actually the majority of his ministry when he came to the earth was to preach the gospel of the kingdom, which was I'm the king that's been promised to you uh, from long past throughout the Old Testament, and I'm here in Israel, which was the target audience. We know that from the covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've come to Israel to set up my kingdom in Israel with Jerusalem as my capital and to evangelize and to um, disciple the entire world through Israel. That was the purpose of the kingdom. And it will be the purpose in the millennial kingdom. But in the first um, effort that Jesus made to set that up, Israel turned against him. And they did that, um, oh, about halfway through his ministry. So the second half of his ministry... Um, He was preaching about his death, burial, and resurrection, which he never talked about in his first ministry, first half. You can basically divide it between the gospel of the kingdom, I'm the king, I'm here to set up my kingdom, and then the gospel of grace when he postponed the kingdom for Israel and offered the gift of grace to those who would accept him on faith. And that's the whole story of the church, isn't it? which started at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, as we've studied and pointed out several times just in this series. So we're um, talking about only believers seeing Jesus during his 40 days here on the earth in his glorified body as a type and shadow, if you will, of what the circumstances will be like uh, when he comes for the rapture of the church. Only the church believers will see him All those that are on the earth that do not believe will not see, will not understand, will not know that it happened. And we'll talk about those points uh, about the rapture itself here in um, a couple of future programs. But we're, we're finishing up our look at the time of his 40 days here on the earth in his glorified body when Jesus appeared to the apostles and to other people and the fact that he allowed them to see him in his glorified body. And if he did not determine that it was worthwhile for them to see him, they didn't see him. And we've seen that in passages so far in John and in Luke and in um, Corinthians. So we've been in John. We just finished in John 21, and we were getting ready in our last program to go over some pertinent verses uh, again during those 40 days in John chapter 21. So if you could go to John chapter 21 in your Bible, right towards the end of the Gospel of John, which is right towards the end of the four Gospels at the beginning of your New Testament, and if you go to Acts, you've gone too far to the right, so come back to the left and find John chapter 21, and we're going to read uh, John chapter 21 And let's um, start with verse 4, and it says, But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, and this is on the beach of the Sea of Galilee, and this is after he's been uh, gloriously resurrected, so he's in his glorified body. So Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Verse 5, So Jesus said to them, "'Children, you do not have any fish, do you?' And they answered him, "'No.' And he said to them, "'Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, "'and you will find a catch.' So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter,' so that would be John, Jesus loved Jesus, said to Peter, "'It is the Lord.' So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put, out, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. So he jumped off the boat and swam to shore. Verse 8, but the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. Verse nine. So when they got out of the got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid, and fish placed on it, and bread. Now let's step out of the scripture here for a minute, and I realize that they've been out fishing, the the apostles, and of course we know that they've been kind of down in the dumps because their Jesus is um, not been manifested to them. This is um, up up about a five days, I guess it's about a five days walk from Jerusalem up to the Sea of Galilee. So they've gone up and they're fishing in their boat, trying to get their mind off of the terrible things that have happened in the recent past. And they can't find any fish. Yet Jesus, in his glorified body, not only has the fire going at breakfast time, but he has fish on it that he's gotten. So all of this is miracle stuff, if you will. (laughs) All right, and then back into verse 10 in John 21, it says, Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the the disciples ventured to question him to ask, who are you? Because they knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. Now this was the third time that Jesus was manifested to them, manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And the, the footnote is, was manifested to means to make himself visible to them, that he allowed them to see who he was. So again, this goes back to the spiritual eyes, the spiritual ears that we've been talking about all through this section number five, that only come to a believer when they accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And at the exact moment that you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, not only as a mental assent, which many people do uh, mentally, uh, academically believe that Jesus is who he says he is, but that never translates down into the heart. You know, the little comment that you hear often is there's 18 inches between heaven and hell, and that 18 inches is the distance between your mind, a mental assent An agreement to who God is, but and and the 18 inches to your heart, where you really believe in your heart that He is who He says He is, and that's the salvation that then leads you to profess Him with your mouth that He is indeed Jesus Christ, the Son of the Living God. That it's that Holy Spirit uh, that comes into you at that moment, that it moves into your heart, if you will. You know, I don't believe that it's accurate to say, you know, I I invite Jesus into my heart. That's easy believism. But the heart, actually it means the stomach in the Hebrew. When you just viscerally believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, there is a complete change. You become a complete new creation and the spirit of the living God enters into you never to leave you again. And it's through that indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God that gives you the spiritual eyes and the spiritual ears to, to understand, to see from a spiritual perspective what's going on. I'm not talking about how you can see things visually with your, your eyes that a, an unbeliever can't see. The world is the world but you, it will allow you, this, the Holy Spirit will allow you uh, in dwelling and working in you and through you to see from a spiritual perspective things that God wants you to see that an unbeliever can't see. To hear things uh, in the reading of the Word, an unbeliever can hear it from an academic perspective, but you can hear it from a glorious um, revelation of truth. Uh, that immediately grabs you and you say, Aha, I understand that, and I can apply it to my life. That is only through the leading of the Holy Spirit that that can happen. And that's what we're talking about here as we wrap up this whole passage uh, of Scriptures dealing with the 40 days when Jesus was on the earth in his glorified body, that he allowed people to see him uh, only because they... they um, had the Holy Spirit on them at that time. Remember, the Holy Spirit would come into them at the um, point of the, the beginning of the church at Pentecost. But nevertheless, the Holy Spirit was with them, as it was with King David in the Old Testament and as it is on King David, and it's in you today. It's the same Holy Spirit But the point is, when it indwells you, it will never, he, I shouldn't say it ever, it's a he, (laughs) a member of the triune Godhead. Uh, So forgive me for that. Uh, The Holy Spirit is a he, that uh, the Holy Spirit, the only difference is that the Holy Spirit will never leave you once he indwells you. If he comes on you, as he did in the Old Testament, we know that he can leave you. And we have a number of scriptures to, um, to make that point but the Holy Spirit was with them and because they would see him um, both in his glorified body and after he was uh, glorified to heaven, they would then become members of the church and that Holy Spirit would come in them. So having the Holy Spirit is critical to being able to see and to hear things that only God can show you uh, and that only a believer can, can perceive and understand. And that's the point through this whole series of programs that we've been exploring scriptures in to make that point that when we move to a discussion of the rapture of the church, that you can understand what it means to only have believers see Jesus in this magnificent work that he's undertaken called the rapture of the church. All right, we want to answer a question from a listener. And we have a question from a listener in Kingsport. And that listener in Kingsport, I hope you're listening, uh, as we try to answer your question, what is the purpose of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden? That's a a great question. I have heard uh, different ministers say that the Bible is found between the trees. And you think, between the trees, what is he talking about? Well, He's talking about the tree of life. You know, we've got the the problematic tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that got Adam and Eve into trouble that um, is of great significance throughout the Bible. But there's another tree, and that's the one the questioner in Kingsport brings up, and that has to do with the tree of life. And we find that there's not only a tree of life in the Garden of Eden, and we'll get into some scriptures here that are early in Genesis, so you can start um, taking your Bible and going to the first book of the Bible, which is the book of Genesis, and um, you can go ahead and go to chapter 2, and uh, we'll get to that in just a moment. In chapter 2, we're looking at verse 9, but we also find at the other end of the Bible, so there you have the idea of the, the Bible is between the trees. It's between Genesis and Revelation, and we find in Revelation uh, the tree of life again in the New Jerusalem. So we have the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, and we have the tree of life in the New Jerusalem during what is called the, the, uh, the Eternity Period, which comes after the Millennial Kingdom and the Great White Throne Judgment. So let's, uh, let's go to those two sets of uh, scriptures, first in Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, and hopefully you're there by now. Genesis chapter 2, we want to look at verse 9, and it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we have it established that the tree of life is in the garden at the time uh, of Adam and Eve and the creation of the garden early in Genesis there. And then we go to the next chapter, chapter 3, and let's look at what happens because of the, uh, the sin of Adam and Eve when they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 22, Genesis, three, chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 22, and we'll read to the end of the chapter there. It says in verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now let's step out here for a moment. Remember when they ate from the, no- the tree from the knowledge of good and evil, God said they would die. The consequence of that is sin and the 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 price of sin is death, and of course we know Satan comes along and says, "Ah, did God really say that? You're not gonna die." So there we see good old Satan. I shouldn't say good. There we see um, Satan um, casting doubt on the validity of God's word. The first thing he does in the Bible is to is to create doubt. So we have the penalty of sin that has now been brought down against Adam and Eve. And God is saying, wait a minute, if he has the tree of life, he can live forever because that's the purpose of the tree of life. So let's continue on in Genesis 3, verse 23. It says, therefore, the Lord God sent him, Adam, out of the garden or out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. Verse 24. So he drove the man out And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim, and that means angels, and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So what has God done here? He has cast Adam and Eve from the garden, and he has put angels and a flaming sword to block the way so that Adam and Eve cannot come back into the garden and take of the tree of life because they would be able to therefore live forever but live forever in sin and that God's not going to have that. So he has blocked the way to the tree of life and of course we know that Jesus will fulfill that gap later on but we'll talk about that hopefully here in in just a moment. I wanted to make a point about another tree that some people mistake for the tree of life and I've actually heard Some fairly well known theologians refer to this tree as the tree of life. And if you would, go to Ezekiel. So that's uh, kind of in the middle of your Bible. If you can locate Isaiah or Jeremiah there in the middle of your, roughly the middle of your Bible, and start working your way back to the right, uh, you'll find um, Ezekiel. Yes, Ezekiel is a book in the Bible. I know, I know you know that, if you've been with us for any amount of time, because we spend a fair amount of time in Ezekiel looking at Bible prophecy, but there are those that don't believe that's really a book. Ezekiel chapter 47, and let's go to verse 12, and this is, again, Ezekiel is very much into prophecy, and he's talking about the millennial kingdom that comes after the tribulation, so this is a thousand year of time. And he's talking about the temple in Jerusalem in which Jesus is sitting as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's talking about water flowing out of the temple and out of Jerusalem and going into the Jordan River Valley and flowing down the valley and making the the Dead Sea, which is dead because it's so salty, making it fresh. And in verse 12 of chapter 47 of Ezekiel, it says, by the river on its bank, on one side and on the other will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They, the trees, will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary, from the temple in Jerusalem, and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Now, there's some similarities with the tree of life. Um, that, that tree in Jerusalem that we read in Ezekiel 47 does provide leaves for healing, which is just like the tree, uh, we're told about it, the tree of life uh, in the new Jerusalem. But the tree, uh, that tree provides the leaves for healing for the Israelites in this instance, in, in the Ezekiel passage. And other than that similarity, the trees appear to serve different purposes. The trees in the Ezekiel passage are for food, and the primary function of the tree of life in the New Jerusalem, as it was in the garden, is to provide life, to provide life. It's interesting that the term tree of life is also found four other times in the Bible besides those passages early in Genesis and and in uh, Revelation four other times. They're all in the book of Proverbs, and each reference to the tree of life in Proverbs, uh, it looks like it symbolizes an attribute that brings joy and healing to people. For instance, in Proverbs 3.15, the tree of life uh, is related to wisdom. In Proverbs 11.30, the tree of life is related to the fruit of righteousness. In Proverbs 13.12, it's related to fulfilled desire. And then finally in Proverbs 15, 4, the tree of life is, is related to a soothing tongue. So it seems like these might be healing qualities that are described of that tree back in Ezekiel 47, that the leaves provide healing for the, uh, the peoples, for the Israelites in that case. Um, So it's interesting that you see those relationships to the tree of life. So it's apparent from Genesis and from Revelation that uh, the purpose of the tree of life in both the Garden of Eden and on the earth during eternity is to provide continuous life to those that eat of its fruit. And the Genesis account of the tree of life reminds us that there's only one way to attain an eternal life of blessedness and that's to do it God's way. And in the garden, it was the tree of life. Now, it's through his Son, the creator of heaven and earth, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's he alone who can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on today's Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.